Well, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, you know how truly grand it is, right? I mean, it is big, it is deep, the colors are just magnificent, and the variance of colors you see at the Grand Canyon. I know when we first went, we stood there, and I thought, it doesn't look real. I mean, here I am at the Grand Canyon, and it still looked like a screensaver. <laughs> it's that grand. That's why they call it the Grand Canyon, and there's, there's nothing like it, right? Well, I was there with my family, and we were in the gift shop searching for some souvenirs, and we had decided that we wanted to get a book for the family. I was over by myself admiring a coffee table book with beautiful pictures of the Grand Canyon, and my three sons and my husband were huddled over another book. It was titled, Over the Edge, Death in the Grand Canyon. <laughs> so I'm going to let you guess which one we came home with. <laughs> That's right. We came home with this book, and we started to read it. The first chapter, it starts off quite uh, exciting. It's called, Say, How Many People Fall Here? It's all about people who have fallen over the rim of the Grand Canyon, some to their death, some to grave injury. And you think, well, I bet children fall a lot, because if you've been to the Grand Canyon and you've seen the guardrails, they're no different than what we see at like Disneyland, right? To get us through the lines, there's these big gaps and a child could just crawl right under and go over that edge. But in reality, very few children have fallen over the edge of the Grand Canyon, thankfully, right? The majority of people that have fallen have been adults. They've been adults. I'll give you a few examples from the book. Don Donald L. Mark in 1958, he climbed over the guardrail behind the El Tovar Hotel. He began putting on an act for onlookers, playfully jumping from rock to rock on the edge of the rim. He fell 300 feet. John Eric Hastrick, 1981, he climbed over a rock guard wall. And just to take an ideal photo, he fell 333 feet. James Merriman in 1993, he was actually an experienced climber. He crossed a safety rail and was jumping from rock to rock looking for good luck coins. These are coins, money, people have tried to throw into the Grand Canyon have missed, they haven't made it, and they are sitting on the rim, and it's considered good luck if you go and collect these coins. He also was kind of hamming it up for the audience and slipped and fell 350 feet. Just as recently as 2017, Dom Gang was being filmed as he walked off the marked path to take a better photo. He slipped and fell 280 feet. Well, you get the picture, right? There's been a lot of other falls. Some have been caused by automobiles. Some have were under the influence of drugs or alcohol. But one common theme seems to run throughout many of them. And park rangers are baffled, right? Because these people bypass these guardrails. They go off the marked paths. And the park rangers say, one of the park rangers said, the falls mostly result from carelessness or ignoring warnings. We issue warnings all the time in the handouts, on signs throughout the park. And we rangers, we walk, about, we walk about and we talk about the dangers of getting too close to the rim. Beyond that, I don't know what else you can do. Well, it begs the question of why. Why would one go past the guardrails or leave the safety of a marked trail when you know there's grave danger? Why would you do that? Well, in the few examples I gave you, we can see why these people did. I mean, some were looking for a better picture. 
I mean, and th that was before the selfie age. You can imagine what it's like today. Uh, some were looking for an adrenaline rush. Some were just looking to get off that path that everyone else walks and wanted to make their own path, travel that path less traveled. And some were looking for the attention of onlookers. Well, whatever the reason, in their minds, they wanted something better than what the Grand Canyon had to offer from the safety of the guardrails and the march trails. And so in our text today, John addresses a similar problem that has come to his attention in the church. Like some of these tourists, some have strayed from the path. Some are no longer walking in truth. We're going to examine what John prescribes to protect us from this same fate and how we can learn to be wise and discerning and steadfast until the end. So let's start by opening our Bibles and turn to 2 John. And we're going to read verses 4 through 8 today. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in truth, in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Well, John starts out our text today by saying he is rejoicing greatly to find some still walking in the truth. And it's not known how many people were part of this small church to begin with. Uh, but it's evident by the language that he is using that uh, not all who were there in the beginning have remained. We don't know if most of the people have left or if just some of the people have left. But, but either way, we can see that something has happened that has caused a number of people to walk away in pursuit of something else. And it's believed that false teachers or deceivers, as John calls them, have infiltrated the church and begun to spread some false truths that's contrary to the truth that they learned in the beginning, and people have wandered into it. The ones who've continued to walk in truth, uh, the ones who have heard the gospel, have heard the truth, they've responded rightly, and they continue to walk in obedience to it, you know, John says that we should rejoice. Uh, these are the people, if you were to look at the parable of the soils and the gospels, they're in that fourth soil. You know, they've stood firm, they are producing fruit, and they are walking in truth. They've not crossed any guardrails. They have not strayed from the path. Uh, and that's something that should be celebrated. And that's why John says he rejoiced greatly. Because the Christian life, it can be hard. Obedience is hard. Loving others is hard. And so if so see people living out their faith with truth and love and obedience, it's something to rejoice about. But in our next verse, he begins with a sort of plea. It starts out in uh, verse 5. And now I ask you, dear lady... Not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. That stake statement, and now I ask you, it, it denotes a tone of urgency, doesn't it? He's basically saying it's not enough that you're walking in truth, I want you to continue to walk in truth, and this is how. And did you notice in our passage uh, the, the phrase, from the beginning, it's used twice in between verses five and six. 
He says regarding the commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning. And then in verse six, he says, just as you have heard from the beginning. And we see him talk similarly in, in 2 John, or I'm sorry, in 1 John, back in 1 John, 1 John 2, verse 24. It's, it's, almost, it's almost an identical statement. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will, show, will abide in the Son and in the Father. With a report, or, a report from people walking away from the truth, John is giving them sound advice so that they may not fall prey as well. And remembering what you've been, he's telling them to remember what they've been taught from the beginning. It's very simple. There are people out there peddling new and improved truth out there. And John is saying, stick with the original. Don't stray. And if we're gonna stay walking in truth, we need to follow John's plea as well. So point number one is stick with the basics. Stick with the basics. Well, John tells his church again that they are to walk in truth. <clears throat> and love out of obedience. And we've heard this many times throughout 1 John, and now we hear it again in 2 John. And this is, this is what they've learned from the beginning. Now, this is a new church, and in this time, they didn't have a full New Testament on their lap. They received truth from the apostles and from the elders of the church. That was their source of truth, is what they had been taught and what they had been heard. Um, and John is telling them to stay with what they were taught. Don't deviate from it. Again, he says, now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning that we love one another. He's saying, stick with the basics that we've known. Well, if you were at Roman's retreat, you may have played one of our games. Uh, we played a game called, What Did You Pack? And it's a game where we list out things that you may have packed for the weekend and you're awarded points if you pack those items. And so to make it a little more challenging, we picked a little more obscure items that maybe not everyone would have in their suitcase, made the game a little more interesting. Because if we had just made a list of items like clothes, shoes, toothbrush, right, it, it would have seemed a little boring, right? But I bet if you were to go and search the bags of everyone at retreat, they would have all of those items in their bags because those are the basics, those are the essentials, those are what you need to go away for a weekend away from home. Well, it can be like that in our Christian life. Um, we may read some great Christian books. Um, we may learn about a lot of different doctrine, such as uh, a Christology, angelology, eschatology. Maybe we learn a lot about apologetics and these are great godly things that we can learn. They, they enrich our faith and they give us a way to defend it. These are great, great things. But we should always keep with us our toothbrush, so to speak, right? Our basics. We should always carry those with us. No matter how much we learn, those need to still be front and center. And for us, our Bibles, our source of truth. For this church, it was the people preaching to them. That's where they got their truth. But for us, it's our Bibles. We have a full Bible in front of us. For us, walking in truth means living consistently with the message of the Bible. We find, we find out about the character of God in the Bible. We find out about his commandments in the Bible. We see the gospel in the Bible. We find out how to live a godly life from the Bible. Everything is there. Everything we need to walk in truth is there, packaged up and binded for us. 
<clears throat> and as we've seen this, um, we've seen this in First and Second John, how he really focuses on the truth. Even in his gospel, he focused on the truth. In John 17, 17, John says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And we even hear about God's word being the truth in the Old Testament. Samuel in 2 Samuel 7, verse 28 says, and now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true. If God's word is our source, then we need to spend a lot of time in it. If we stick with the basics, we have to be stuck to our Bibles, absolutely stuck to our Bibles. So I'm gonna ask you, how well do you know your Bible? How are you doing with the DBR this year? Have you stuck with us? I know we talk about it here at Compass all the time, the importance of being in the Word. We drill at home, and it might be easy to say, you know, it's old, it's tired, right? I've heard it a million times. But we have to be in our Bibles. We're gonna hear it again. We have to be in our Bibles. It's, it's simple, it's the basics. We just have to do it. There's really no other option. And for us, the Bible is our basics. That's where we go for truth. It's our source of truth, and it's what's gonna keep us walking in the truth. When we read the DBR, are we just reading the words on the page and just checking off that box that we read DBR? Or are we reading it slowly and taking it in and considering what it's saying and really considering that it's God's word? I know we call it that all the time, but really consider it's God's word you're reading. It's not just words on a page. Are we holding ourselves accountable to what God's word says? And if we can't hold ourselves accountable, are we finding somebody who can help us with that? Or how about taking it one step further? How are you doing at memorizing scripture? I know when I asked myself this question, I was, I was convicted. It is, it's not something that I've put enough focus on. Hiding God's word in our heart, it's, it's someplace safe, right? No one can get to it. We can pull it out whenever we need it when we need to defend the faith, when we need to be comforted, um, when we need to be encouraged. I mean, God's word is there, just there. We don't have to pull it up on our device or open a book, it's there in our hearts. You know, we just spent you know, a few months back, months in quarantine, right? Where literally a lot of us didn't leave our houses for months. How did you spend that time? Did you use that time to really dig into God's word, to memorize God's word? I mean, we all had a lot of time on our hands. We had no ministry going on. We had no church on the weekends. There was no school. Did we use our time to dig into God's word? Again, we have it in our, if we have it in our hearts, it is protected. And I ask you, what if tomorrow uh, they came and took our Bibles? They're gone. Every copy of the Bible gone. And uh, Apple and... Android took every Bible app off their platform. And the internet, Google and everybody took every Bible site off the internet. Logos is gone, it's all gone. What would you have left? What's in your heart, right? So ask yourself, what would I have left if it were all gone tomorrow? We need to keep that truth front and center. It needs to be in our hearts. Well, back to our passage, John talks about walking in truth. He uses that word walking. He says again, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. It's that Greek word peripateo, and it literally means to walk or to live. 
And that's what we're doing, right? To walk is to move forward, to progress, it's a verb. John didn't use a stationary word like sitting in truth or standing in truth or even just knowing the truth because it's not just head knowledge, it's walking in truth. We need to take the truth with us always. Um, you know, you can't do the DBR one year and then say, okay, I've read the Bible. I actually experienced this with somebody, a family member who I, you know, got to read the Bible one year. I was so excited. I encouraged them through the way through. And at the end of the year, I rejoiced and I congratulated them. And I said, well, you ready to start tomorrow? And this person said, well, no, I've read the Bible now. They were done. They read it once. They checked the box. And sometimes we can treat truth the gospel, the Bible, like that, like it's a starting block in a race where a runner just pushes off and goes off and it's left behind. But really, it's something we need to take with us. It should be with us at all times. It should be more like the baton a runner carries because it's our ultimate source of truth. If we're to stick to the basics, knowing our Bible is basic. It's as basic as it can get. Well, sometimes the basics can just seem so basic, right? The Bible, it can get boring sometimes, if you admit to yourself. You know, recently, if you're doing the DBR, we read through Leviticus and Numbers. How'd you do, <laughs> right? We read through Genesis, and it's exciting. There's stories, you know, it's story-based. You go through Exodus, there's all the miracles and the plagues and all that stuff. It's all exciting. Then you get to Leviticus. And it's that time when we can be tempted to turn away and think, oh, this is boring, I'm over it. And some don't return. This is a drop-off point for many people when they read the Bible in chronological order. But this is also, if we drop off, when we're tempted to dabble in other things, uh, maybe something new, something else, something fresh. And there's something exciting in being about the first one in the knowledge and the know of something uh, the first one to hear something new or being on the front, load of, front line of knowledge or revelation. In business, they say it's important to get in on the ground floor. Be the first one. And that may be true of, let's say, the uh, first Mary Kay representatives, right? They're doing pretty well, I'd say. Or how about Steve Jobs' uh, first secretary? She lives in a $7 million house in Silicon Valley as we speak. They get on, got in on the ground floor on something new. But when it comes to truth, there is nothing new. There is nothing new and um, a new revelation, right? Well, the truth is the same yesterday, today, and it'll be the same tomorrow. It does not change. But for some, change is what they crave. And the, the basics can just get, frankly, boring. Well, John, in our text today, he warns about this. In fact, he's getting ready to warn his church of the dangers that are out there that may tempt them to believe differently from what they have known from the beginning. In verse 7, it says this, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. We've seen how some of, these, some of this group are no longer uh, walking in truth, and we can gather from the text that it is due to people coming in, these deceivers. And they've come and they've tempted them to get off that path of truth and wander into untruths, unfortunately. And John wants them to stick to those basics and not yearn for anything new, because that could lead them astray. 
And we need to do the same. So point number two is resist the desire for something new. Resist the desire for something new. We've all dealt with having the desire for something new. Just think about a car, right? You get a new car. It has the new car smell, which is awesome. It's clean. I mean, you can't wait to get into it every day and drive it. It's super exciting. And then you fast forward about five or six years. It doesn't have that same feel, right? You're like, this car is old, it's boring. You're starting to look at the newer model of that car or other cars on the street. You want something new. We may think that getting that one thing will make our lives easier, will make it better, but we know in our hearts it won't. We all at one time have struggled with being content with having just what we need. And while the world may not see this as a problem, to desire more, to desire new, if you're a Christian, we know that wanting something new or more is not a godly way to live. We're called to be content. And unfortunately, this desire, if we have it, can bleed over from our material and our relational lives. It can bleed over into our spiritual lives if we're not careful. And John, again, he uses that word deceivers when he describes people that have been roaming about this church. Again, verse seven, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. And John's not the only one to warn of false teachers. This is nothing new. I mean, it seems to be quite common. We see it all over the New Testament. I mean, Peter talks about it in 2 Peter verses 1 through 3. He says, but false prophets also rung, rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. I mean, if we just look at that passage, there's that word secretly, right? They sneak in and uses the word sensuality. They appeal to our feelings. They appeal to our emotions. It says they follow their sensuality, follow our emotions. We know that our emotions and our feelings are terrible leaders, right? Well, the apostle Paul has a very direct way of addressing this issue when he calls out the Galatians. In Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9, Paul says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And when he says, I'm astonished, it just reminds me of like when a parent says, I'm so disappointed in you, right? It's just like, like that gut punch. But then he says that they've abandoned, they've turned to a different gospel. But I love how he says this, not that there is another one. These people have basically turned to something that doesn't even exist. They've walked into myths, they've walked into untruths. How foolish. Well, false teachers are common and they, are, they were common then and they are common today. Uh, we know of this. You may be thinking of one off the top of your head now. Because the gospel message, the, the message of truth, it doesn't sit well with everybody. Um, the temptation to make it more modern, the temptation to make it more palatable, especially on the bad news side of the gospel, it's great, and people do it all the time. I remember when I was in high school, did you guys learn about Greek mythology? I remember learning about Greek mythology, and I thought, did they really believe all this stuff? You know, did they believe there was a guy out in the ocean with a giant trident? This is crazy, right? 
That's why now it's called mythology, but at some point people believed that. Well, Timothy says that we are no different if we give in to false teaching. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 4, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Well, you might be thinking, I would never fall for someone preaching a false truth, uh, claiming a gospel that's different to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I don't, I don't want anything more than what the Bible has to offer. But we cannot be naive to the incredibly deceiving, conniving tactics that false teachers use because they like to tap into our sin nature, which we are all still, still here in fallen bodies, right? We still have a sin nature, even if we are saved, and they tap into that. They're masters of deception and cunningness, and they are so subtle in their ways. You know, a false teacher isn't gonna march in here and take the mic and get up on stage and say, I have a brand new gospel. Everything that you've learned about Jesus Christ is false, but I'm gonna tell you the truth. If someone did that, I know we'd all just get down, right? Get out of here. We'd all shoo them away. But that's not how they operate. That's just not how they operate. A false teacher will blend in. They blend in among us. Jude 1.4 says this, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. He says they crept in unnoticed. That means that no one saw them as a standout. They didn't stick out like a sore thumb. They blend in. They probably said the right things, they probably do the right things, but their motives are contrary to God. And a false teacher will also oftentimes not deny the entire gospel at once. They're just gonna take a tiny part of it and tweak it, right? That's why it's so important that we know our Bibles because everything said about God and truth can be tested through his word. We can filter the things we hear and the filter things that we see through, and we can filter it through God's word and it will tell us clearly if it's true or false. You know, maybe it starts with somebody interpreting a Bible verse, like you've never heard it before. They cite a Bible verse and they give a new and fresh interpretation and you say, oh, I've never thought about it that way. Test it. Test it against scripture before you move forward with that interpretation. You know, even the Jews did this uh, with Paul. I mean, under Paul's teaching, the Jews did this. In the book of Acts in Berea, Acts 17, verses 10 and 11, says the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So here we have the Jews and they are under Paul's teaching. And you can't think of you know, he's probably a really good teacher, right? He wrote half the New Testament. And they're under Paul's teaching. And even what he was saying, they're going back to the scriptures. They're checking it against God's word. And that's what we need to do. A lot of times we can see books that are misleading. And it's hard to tell if they're misleading. I mean, if you look at the top-selling Christian book list, um, really what, what constitutes as a Christian book nowadays, uh, the bar is pretty low, I think we could agree. I think if they say the word God in the book, it's now filed under a Christian book, right? And if you look at that list, a lot of them are very, very misleading. 
And if you've been around a while and you've heard Stephanie do her hot topic she does at the end of Bible study every year, she has profiled a couple of these books that we really need to steer clear of. And one that she did great, a great teaching on was Jesus Calling. It's by Sarah Young. And Sarah Young claims to uh, speak for God. She claims that she hears God and she writes down what God is saying and he gives her new revelation. Um, she writes things that are outside the Bible and thus she insinuates that the Bible is insufficient, that it's incomplete, that it can't fully, fully be trusted. And in all her revelations, she seems to steer clear of things like sin and hell. But her readers are left desiring that as well. They're desiring to hear from God. They're desiring to get that new revelation and waiting to hear from God. It's new, it's different, it's exciting. Well, recently, prophecy has made it in the news quite a lot, if you follow the news, uh, especially during this last election cycle. Uh, a number of pastors and some Christian influencers online filmed some YouTube videos claiming they had prophecy about the outcome of the 2020 election and various other events. And they claimed these things with certainty. Many of them claimed that it was prophecy and a message from God. And these videos got millions of views, millions. And they got thousands of shares, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of shares. And a lot of those shares were done by Christians. These things were said and they were shared because the people sharing them and the people saying them wanted them so badly to be true. But they weren't. These prophecies were completely false and were proven so, and even some of these pastors have had to make extremely public apologies for the things that they've said. Well, life is busy, it's hectic. Sometimes we can wanna just check out, just get away from it all, turn it off. And some Christians have turned to meditation, uh, mindfulness, or visualization that's just to deal with their anxiety or to visualize their lives as they would like them. Right now on the App Store, there's over 20 meditation apps you could download. On Netflix right now, there's a 10-part series on how to meditate, 10 parts, on how to just clear your mind, because that's what meditation is. It is clearing your mind of everything, completely emptying it of everything. And then there's this visualization where they believe if you visualize what you want for your life, whatever it is, the job, the husband, whatever it is, that just visualizing will make it happen. Well, if we look at scripture, we can see that first off, we're commanded to not be anxious. That's, that's where it starts. And then we're directed to do what instead? In Philippians 4, 6, very familiar passage, I'm sure you've heard before, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You know, it doesn't say do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, meditate. It says go to God. It says go to God. And you might say, well, the Bible does have the word meditate in it, right? And it does. Actually, quite often we have the word meditate in the Bible. But when the Bible says to meditate, the end result is not to have a clear mind. Uh, we can Start by clearing our mind of untruths, of sinful thoughts, of just junk in general. But immediately after, and I mean immediately after, we are to fill it up to the brim with things of God. Joshua 1.8 says it like this, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, 
so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it. Psalm 119, verse 15 says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. Psalm 1, 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. These verses are telling us we should be meditating on God's word, on his law, on his commandments. That's what we should be filling our minds with. In Deuteronomy 6, it doesn't mention the word meditation, uh, but I think we can agree it's a strong statement of how we should be handling God's word in our minds. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you visit, when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Right? Talk about being filled with God's truths. You can't escape it. The Bible also gives us some advice as to what other things we can fill our minds with in Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if anything is worthy of praise, think about these things. So if we're tempted to meditate we need to think about those things and be filling our minds. And if we're in our Bibles, right, all of these things I just listed, if we're in our Bibles consistently, we have the defense we need against false teachings. It's all there. And you might be thinking, oh, you know, I don't, I don't even know where to start if I come across something that I might think is false. I mean, where do I even start? Well, there's a few questions you can ask yourself. I came across these on a really great site, and I wanted to share them with you. First thing you can ask, you can ask is, is a test, I should say, is to test the origin. Test where the message is coming from. Is it coming from God? Because sound doctrine comes from God and his word. A false doctrine is gonna come from someone or something created by God. So if it's coming from a person, that's not God. I know a lot of people claim, you know, nature is saying this. Mother nature is telling us. That, that's not God. That's God's creation. That's not coming from God. Number two, test the authority. Test the authority. Who's in charge? Who's saying this? I mean, sound doctrine is grounded, again, in the Bible. But false doctrine is grounded outside the Bible. It's a good test. And then if they're using the Bible, which false teachers often will, make sure they're using things in context. <laughs> That's another tactic, is to take a verse and have it have a meaning all of its own, not taking it in context with the entire uh, passage with the entire book, with the entire Bible, which leads to the next one, test the consistency. So our Bible is written by over 40 human authors, right? But we know that there's truly only one author, and because of that, there is this line of consistency running throughout. It's the same message throughout. No matter who actually penned the Bible, it's the same message. And if you are ever reading or hearing or listening to something and you see it differ from that line of consistency, that should be a red flag. And lastly, test it for spiritual growth. Sound doctrine is gonna be beneficial for our spiritual growth. Sound doctrine is going to push us to become more holy, push us to become more like Christ. But unsound doctrine is gonna do quite the opposite. It's gonna weaken, it's gonna weaken us spiritually. A lot of times, uh, unsound doctrine will minimize sin. It's not a big of deal as we think it is. Um, a lot of times, again, it will appeal to sensuality and feelings. So be on guard for that. 
To resist the desire to want something new, we need to be prepared when something new comes along. Well, my husband and I know how to sail, and when we got our, our uh, certification, we had to take a navigation class. And this was uh, not your looking at the GPS screen navigation. This was like the legit charts and the compass and the parallel ruler and all of that. And the, the instructor of the class, he really drove home the importance of keeping your heading. And if you don't know that word for sailing, it's your heading is the direction you're going. And it's expressed in, on charts and things like that in a degree. And it's the degree as it pertains to true north. And so when you chart out a course of where you're going, you find your heading and you're to stick to that. It's extremely important. And so he had us chart a course to an island on a chart that was about 300 miles away. And we drew our line. And then he said, now move the slide rule over, you know, couple, couple degrees, two, three degrees to the right or to the left. And we did that. And he says, now chart your course. And we did that. And when we drew that line, in the beginning, they were really close together, but they very soon moved further apart. And that second line never hit the island we wanted to hit. Uh, the second line went past it. It bypassed it. But not the bypass like where you're going to see it in the distance and go, oh, we, we missed it. Like, you wouldn't even see the island. That's how far off this second course was. You know, John gives us a warning in verse eight. He says, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. If we're gonna withstand the influence of false teachers, we have to keep our heading. We have to remain steadfast on that straight and narrow. We have to be motivated by what our end is. So point number three is stand firm to the end. Stand firm to the end. Well, John really comes full circle in this passage. We've started out by talking about, you know, remaining with what you learned in the beginning, right? When you first became a Christian, in the beginning. And then he brings us all the way to lifting our eyes and saying, keep an eye on the end. Keep an eye on where we're going. Maintain it. He says, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward, and he reminds them, what is at stake? And the first thing he mentions is what we have worked for. And uh, that's not pertaining to our salvation. We know if we are truly saved that our salvation is, is secure. It, we cannot lose it, and praise God for that. But what he's talking about is what we have worked for. He's including himself in that. And as the elder of this church, he has probably helped to grow this church. And if you know anything about church growth, it's not about, you know, physically growing. It's about adding souls to the kingdom. I mean, if you've been around Compass long enough, you know that we plant churches. We're planting a lot of churches, and this isn't to gain real estate or create an empire. It's so that people can be saved, so that more souls are won over for the kingdom. It's a key part of growth, and we work hard for that. It's the Great Commission. It's what Jesus calls us to do, is to go out and make disciples. Well, if we're at a church and, you know, Pastor Mike's up here giving a great, solid, truthful message. But then there's a, maybe a ministry leader, a leader in one of the ministry who is tweaking it a bit to some of her attendees. Do you think that could affect how many souls are saved? Do you think that could affect if a, if a soul strays off the path and wanders into untruths? Absolutely, absolutely. We need to be on the same page. We all need to be walking in truth. It is extremely important. If we entertain or allow false teaching, it, it weakens our entire testimony, and souls will wander away. 
Well, I was a gymnast uh, growing up, and when you, when you practice gymnastics as a girl, one thing people always ask you is, how do you stay on that balance beam? Because <laughs> if you don't know anything about the balance beam, it's four inches wide. It's literally straight and narrow. <laughs> and I'm going to give you a secret of how you stay on the beam. You ready? You keep your eyes focused on the end of the beam at all times. Any move you do, a leap, a turn, a flip, your eyes go straight back to the end of that beam. And that's how you stay on the beam. Because the minute you look down, the minute you look to the left or the right, your chances of a wobble or a fall are almost imminent. And in gymnastics, the point system is very precise. Uh, it's not like football, where you score a touchdown, you get six points, right? Gymnastics, the point system, you can lose an event by one one-hundredth of a point. And so if you have a major wobble, you, learn, you, you lose three-tenths of a point. And if you actually fall off the balance beam, you lose a half a point. Game over. You know, you're not winning that event with a score like that. And John gives us similar advice. He gives us a second reason. He says that we need to be looking at how we can gain our full reward. John's second reason he gives us is to watch ourselves by holding on to our heavenly rewards. All salvation, again, it's, it's secure if it's real. Um, our rewards in heaven vary depend on, depending on how we walked in truth here on earth. And heaven is not a communist society. There is not equality of outcome. We know, if we've read the Bible, that uh, rewards will be given that are greater or less depending on our deeds. And 2 Corinthians 5.10 speaks to this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We know non-Christians uh, face a different judgment, an eternal condemnation. And earlier in uh, in for in First John, um, early in our passage, John says that not some, some of them are, have wandered and are not walking in truth, which means some of them have left. But in First John 2.19, he talks about what this looks like. He gave great detail. He said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So these people went looking for something uh, better than what God had for them. They traded that straight and narrow path for the path that was wide, that led to destruction. But in their minds, they believed the destination was the same, and they were deceived. People that leave for false teaching and abandon the true gospel have never really been saved to begin with. But if we entertain or allow false teaching to go on. We may lose, we not, we're not going to lose our salvation, but our text says that we will lose our full reward. When we look for things outside of God's truth and pursue them, we're, we're crossing that guardrail. We're straying from the marked path. Proverbs 4, verses 25 through 27 puts it this way. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Our motivation to stay on the path, to stay the course, uh, should be eternity. I mean, where our path leads is paradise. And this is a promise. There is nothing to the left or to the right that could possibly compare with what's at the end. So why would we even look? 
Well, distorting the Christian faith, it's, it's old. It's been around since, uh, since the gospel's been around, right? It's nothing new. Nothing much has changed. The truth is attacked from every angle. And you can imagine that you can imagine, and unfortunately many, even still today, are deceived and fall prey to these deceptions. But we serve a good and loving God, and he's given us a path that is good and that is safe, and it leads to eternity with him. So what more could we need? He's given us truth, he's enabled us to love and obey him, and he has rewards for us in heaven. We serve a great and mighty God. Well, open your Bibles to Jeremiah 6, verse 16. <clears throat> it says, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. I'd like that on a plaque, right? How wonderful is that? Find rest for your soul. Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But there's one more line. But they said, who he's speaking to, we will not walk in it. How sad, right? How tragic. Ladies, if you're a true Christian walking in truth, let's rejoice at the goodness of God who's placed us on this road where we can find rest for our souls. And may the awe of God never fade and that we never want more, and that we continue forward to the end. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this passage, Lord, and just the stern warning it gives us. May we all grow in wisdom and discernment and arm ourselves so that we are ready for anything the world throws at us that could be false and contrary to what you have taught us from the beginning. Lord, I pray each of these women will be in their word, memorizing their word, hiding it in their hearts. I pray that we're all motivated to do this so that we can be on guard. Lord, I pray for fruitful discussions tonight and thank you for this time together where we can gather face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.